It is good to have you with us this morning. And uh, as we're going through this summer, the books of First and Second Peter, we find ourselves in Peter chapter 4 uh, today. And so if you want to go ahead and bring out your Bibles or your uh, Scripture journals and open those up, we'll be getting ready for that. Um, George was 92 years old, and Sarah, Jane, was 89. They decided after a little while that they wanted to get married, and they were all excited about that. And so they took a stroll down the uh, through town, and, and as they were going around, they were just discussing the wedding plans, and they passed a drugstore. And so they went into the drugstore, and, and George asked to speak with the owner. And so the conversation kind of went like this. We're about to get married, George said. Do you sell heart medication? <laughs> of course we do, the owner replies. Well, how about support hosts, you know, for poor circulation? Well, definitely. What about medicine for rheumatism, osteoporosis, uh, arthritis? George continues to ask these odd questions. And definitely. He says, well, all kinds of What those. about medicine well, for how rheumatism, about osteoporosis, uh, arthritis? George continues to ask these yes, odd questions. Yes, we sell that as well. And so then George asks, he says, well, how about hearing aids, denture supplies, reading glasses? Well, yes. What about eye drops, sleeping pills, Geritol and Insure? Most definitely, absolutely. Well, do you sell wheelchairs, walkers, and canes? He says, all kinds of sizes, but, but why are you asking me all these questions? And then George smiles proudly and announces, well, we'd like to use your store as a wedding registry. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a popular thing today, these wedding registries, right? And so it would have to go with this couple. They're preparing for the trials that are to come in their lives. You know, now, granted, they may be 92 and 89, but George and Sarah Jane, just they're ready to, uh, to jump into this. But they're trying to make these preparations. Well, in the same way, it is good for all of us to make preparations for the trials that are going to come because of our faith. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So as a church, we need to understand that the more we try to be like Christ and follow after Him, the more we're going to upset the world and persecution will come. So Peter is writing here in this book of 1 Peter, he's anticipating that Jesus is going to return soon, and, and, and his, his return is imminent, and it, it's just... To him, it's on the horizon, and it could be any day. And so he, he, he wants to, to let his, his, his readers know that they have got to get ready for a test of their faith because the world is not happy with what Jesus is doing to it. So he begins here in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and he lays out for them that they need to be preparing for persecution. And so the very first thing he tells them is you need to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. So let's read verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When Ronald Reagan gave his first inaugural address back on January 20th, 1981, he made reference to the, to the simple white crosses at Arlington National Cemetery and the people that were buried there in that graveyard. They gave their lives on the battlefields of freedom, he said. But I want to take just a little insert of what he talked about during that address. He said, under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Trepto, who left his job in a small town barbershop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on that western front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that his body was found a diary. And on the flyleaf under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words, America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will serve, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost, as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Now Martin Tripto had, had armed himself with the right attitude when he was facing the conflict that he was about to go into. And he was ready to give his life for the country. And in the same way, we must prepare ourselves as we go into battle, maybe not on a battlefield in Europe, but it's a spiritual battlefield that is on the street in which you live. And every morning you rise to it, you've got to be prepared for what lies ahead. You must mentally prepare to suffer like Jesus did. And that begins with a choice that you make. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, he says, for, those we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging according, war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments of every lofty argument or opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought, every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. See, our biggest problem is not a physical problem, it's a spiritual one. Therefore, we need to prepare our minds for what lies ahead when we surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ because we are waging a war that cannot be seen. And so in Romans, Paul tells the church in chapter 13, verse 12, that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He tells the church in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The warfare in which we're entering into, Peter says and Paul says, is one that is not in this world fleshly. Oh, even though there may be people that are staring at us and we think they're real, it is. But it's not about the reality of this life on earth. It's about the reality of the spirit in which Christ is placed within us. And so the, Christian, the picture of the Christian preparation for battle are those who, who are armed with this unswerving resolve to follow in obedience to Christ and to allow His Spirit to guide us, to be able to stand strong in the face of any persecution that comes our way. So in this context, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, 
Peter is saying that the primary weapon that we have at our disposal is arming ourselves with the right way of thinking, getting control of our mind and our thoughts. Right now we have a choice to either take the easy way out and accept the customs and the morals of our society, or we can take the difficult way, which means to stand strong against it and follow Christ in obedience and be willing possibly surrender our lives. Well, the first thing he tells us is we need to abandon our sinful lifestyle. That's important. We cannot continue to live the way we were as the pagans lived. And so he tells us in verse 2, he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The one who suffers for Christ has made a choice to leave behind the things of this world all of its pleasures, all of its benefits, and to forsake those and follow Christ, just like Moses did. When he was choosing to leave Egypt and to follow along with his people, the Hebrews. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, it says that Moses, he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We should join in with Moses. You see, all sin really is disobedience to God. It doesn't matter what it is, it's all sin against Him. How great or small we may classify it, it doesn't matter. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul commands us, as he's writing to the church in Rome, how we ought to live when it comes to facing the confrontations of this world. And so he tells us in 12... Verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's through our will being transformed to His, through the testing of our mind, the renewal of our mind. But sin, on the other hand, is an expression of disobedience and a refusal to do the will of God. And all of us have sinned. And we've all refused to be obedient to Him. But yet we as Christians have a hope. And that hope is in the life that Jesus has given us that we'll no longer sin and that we'll have mastery over it and that that His righteousness is going to reign in our mortal bodies until the day He returns. So Paul writes again in Romans chapter 6, verses 8-12, through Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. So through the perfect life of Jesus and His obedience to His Father, 
we have the privilege of being adopted into a relationship with Him, with our sins, all that we've committed, forgiven, cast aside, remembered no more, but it's through His work and not our own. Have you ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? Russell Crowe portrays the life of John Forbes Nash, Jr., Now, in the movie, it kind of traces the life of this genius mathematician and Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, as he is tortured by this, this paranoid schizophrenia, and it gets worse and worse in his life. And finally, at the peak of his career, his psychotic delusions, they forced his wife to admit him into a psychiatric and mental institution. The doctors used shock therapy and and various other medications to try and help him overcome his schizophrenia. But his delusional world almost all but disappeared. But the medicines that that Nash was taking, they left him unable to think, to to care for his young son, or to love and be intimate with his wife. He had no, no ability to control his own thoughts and minds. And so... With the help of his wife, he was determined to get off all those medications, and he would discipline his mind to ignore the delusions that the schizophrenia was bringing on upon him. And eventually, he was able to resume his teaching career in Princeton University. That's amazing. So with the help of his wife and getting off those things, in 1994, Thomas King from the Nobel Committee paid him a visit. And he met with Nash to assess his mental state and determine if he might be a possible candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize. So in their conversation, Nash says this to King, kind of a tongue-in-cheek. He says, I am crazy. I take the, the newer medications, but I still see things that are not there. I still, I just choose not to acknowledge them. Like a diet of the mind, I just choose not to indulge certain appetites. And see, that's the attitude that we need to have. That's the attitude that we need to have as Christians. We need to make a specific choice not to indulge certain appetites of this world to control our mind and its passions and say no to sin and ungodliness. So the question is, what will your choice be? Will you choose to be done with the old lifestyle, or will you choose to continue to embrace it? But it's up to you to make that choice. Peter then tells us that we need to anticipate abuse. And so verses 3 through 5, he goes on and he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." So here we see Peter is listing a a bunch of descriptive words that describe our passions, our our struggle, the things that drive us to do things in this world that that really are are sinful in effect. He says that we ought to not practice these things. And so let's kind of look quickly at some of these. 
All of them refer to a lack of self-control, such as sensuality. It, it describes this person who is engaged in an unbridled, unrestrained vice of sensuality of all sorts. It, it could be translated in some, in some versions as debauchery. All right? It's an excessive indulgence of our sensual pleasures. We want to feel good, so we do these things. Then he throws on the word passions, and that can be described as lusts that drive people into pursuing the indulgences that they have. He throws in another word, drunkenness, which literally means wine bubbling up, and it refers to habitual intoxication. Now, while drinking in moderation, the Bible really doesn't speak against, but it does plainly speak against drunkenness, that we should have nothing to do with that. We should not be controlled by any substance out there, whether it's alcohol or drugs or any other behavior that just pushes us to do things. He throws in the idea of orgies or carousing, and clearly Peter is referring to the participation in the wild parties that they were living around in that area of Rome and government. And those parties had a sexual overtone to them. Well, those parties are still going on today, aren't they? In one extra-biblical Greek text, a, a term described a band of drunken people that sang loudly and they staggered wildly through the streets, causing major public disturbances and lewdness in their behavior. Then he says there's drinking parties. And this is those get-togethers for the sole purpose of getting drunk and just enjoying the wine itself. Today we call it happy hour. Oh, gets a little close, doesn't it? But happy hour is in hopes that we'll have the ability to forget all of our problems and that we can just enjoy life. But we've just created another problem because we'll wake up in the morning with a bad headache. The last thing he says is lawless idolatry. So that brings into discussion the immoral, the shameless worship of false gods in their world, and that those things also accompanied their carousing around. Now, while evil in themselves, all these things, these behaviors, become more evil when you unite them with worshiping somebody else and not God. Now, such sins were described in such a way of life as Peter's readers that when they abandoned them, their friends couldn't understand why, and they became antagonistic about them and resentful because they quit partying with them. They quit doing these things with them. They quit showing up at happy hour, and they want to know why. You see, sin is such a normal way of life that a lot of people are really surprised when you quit doing it. Because you don't, want to, you don't want to go out partying with me this weekend? You don't want to go to that place? You don't want to watch that movie? You don't want to get drunk? You don't want to do this? Why, why? What is this that's changing you? And when we tell them it's Christ, then they don't like him at all. And they then don't like us because we're eventually just pointing out the failures and the weaknesses in their own character. And they don't want to see that. First century practices often involved parades with banners that were proclaiming with the images of the gods in which they worshipped. In some cases, in those parades there was cult prostitution that took place or ritual self-mutilation. Christians also avoided these festivals because they appeared 
uh, antisocial and, and unpatriotic and irreverent to their neighbors. And the dinner parties were often held in private residences, and they would invite people over in the business area and aspect. And when you didn't show up because you didn't want to go there, then you might lose a connection in business because you were looking down upon them. Friends and would shun them. They refused to eat with them. Unbelievers then reacted with hostility, even because they wanted to justify their own actions and their own sinful lifestyles. The partying lifestyle may be fun for a short time, but in the end, it's a reckless waste, and after that comes judgment. So people who waste their lives living this while, and they become critical of us because of our commitment to Christ, there's a coming day when they're going to have to stand before Jesus Christ, and convince him that what they've done in their wild living really was appropriate and beneficial. But it doesn't measure up. It won't be there. It's kind of like when people look at a masterpiece of art and, and they begin to criticize it. You know those critics who walk into like the Louvre or you know the, the Metropolitan and, and they look at a piece of art maybe by Rembrandt or, or, or someone else like Michelangelo and then they start criticizing all the little things. And you think, who are you? I mean, to be able to, to do some of the masterpieces and then yet somebody who probably can't even draw a stick figure comes in and says, oh, he messed up on that line over there. That's the way we are. When people criticize a follower of Jesus, they're criticizing his masterpiece, which he has created. And so when you came to faith in Christ, God began to create a masterpiece in you. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that for we are His workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, where we get our word poem. It's something that has been created. It's a masterpiece, the workmanship that God has done. That He was to do is to explain that there is coming a judgment day for people. To let them know that they need to change their life before it comes. But finally, Peter says, we need to learn to finish strong. So he takes this last section here, verses 7 through 11, and he lays out for us this understanding. 
Now, let me kind of give you a little bit of a, a, a picture of all this. Remember in the fourth Ice Age movie, how many of you like cartoons, right? Manny the Woolly Mammoth, Sid the Sloth, and Diego the Sabertooth Cat, they embark on this epic quest to, uh, to, to f- just to save their lives after the continental drift is taking place. Well, as they're fighting to save their lives, Crash and Eddie, uh, they are, uh, let's say, just kind of two shallow um, escapist possums. Um, they're, they're too busy having fun with everything that's going on in this world as it's falling apart that they're not concerned about the problems. Now, in one of the scenes, Crash and Eddie are each perched atop of a tree and they're waiting for the shifting of the, the mountain behind them to push the base of their tree and catapult them through the air. And they have this conversation. So I want you to take a look. you guys something how are you both so happy doesn't it weigh on you that the world might be ending can i tell them our secret come here come here we're very very stupid (laughs) but still you're not a teensy bit concerned about i don't know say imminent death (sighs) i'm gonna go find peaches I mean, I guess that's one way to face the end of the world, isn't it? Just enjoy the ride while it lasts and, and don't worry about things. I mean, you know, as I look at the crazy world around us, I've come to the conclusion that the end of the world is very close to two events that might take place. One is that Jesus is going to return a lot sooner than we think. Or two that he's going to spark a revival in the church and it's going to make a huge impact in our world. The question though is which one? I mean either either the Holy Spirit is coming to breathe new life into the church or Jesus is coming to take his church out of this crazy world so that we can be in the very presence of the God who created it all. So how do you get your life in order when it may be the end of all ends. How do we prepare ourselves for the ending? You see, you can be blissfully unaware like Crash and Eddie, or you can be fully aware and you make some radical changes in your lifestyle and things that you are. But the Bible shows us how we can face the end of the world. And so Peter says, you learn to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's what he tells us in verse 7. He says, The end of the world of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The phrase translated be self-controlled comes from a term that literally means to be in one's right mind. To be under control, to not be carried away by an errant view of of oneself or undue emotions or uncontrolled passions. And so Peter is reminding his, his readers that in a very short time, Jesus is coming back, and they should be very sure of their reward because they're living faithful to Him. So they need to keep a clear mind and maintain self control. 
Sober-minded closely is related to, to meaning of the self-control as well, as well, but it has a spiritual observation as, to it as well. So Jesus expresses this similar sentiment when he warned the apostles in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, he said, therefore, stay awake. That's where he gets it. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So you've got to be prepared because he is coming one of these days. So be sober-minded suggests that the believers should think about and evaluate the situation that they're in right now because what would it be like if Jesus returned at that moment? A few years ago, Frederick Colting from Sweden, um, he invented what he calls ticker. It was a watch, all right? Now, ticker, it's this rich wa- wrist watch that counts down your life. Yeah, isn't that interesting? All right, so he, he, what he's done is this, this, this watch has a, a, a little countdown on it so that you know how many more days, months, minutes, seconds you have to live so that you can make some positive changes as you're aware that life is short. By the way, I was trying to see if I could get that watch. It's sold out. It, so you had to probably find it from a second-hand place or whatever. Well, this ticker allows the watch, you, you look at it as a dot matrix screen, displays all these things about the countdown of your life. And you estimate your time of death is, of course, really just an estimate. Now, what he did was he uses an algorithm like the federal government uses to determine the longevity of people's lives, all right? And so he uses this algorithm based upon you, about your age, about, uh, you know, all the different things, your height, your weight, all those kinds of things, uh, where you live, and then this algorithm determines really how much longer you probably anticipate and estimate to live. So the effect, I think, could be rather sobering on us. Just knowing that, oh man, I got three days left. <laughs> uh, well, you may have four, but it's, it's telling me three. Right? But you think about all these things. It's kind of morbid. But Frank Colting says that he invented a gadget not as a morbid novelty item, but as an earnest attempt to change his own thinking. So he's a former grave digger. Right? So he's had some time to think about death. And so this is what he said, the occurrence of death is no surprise to anyone, but in our modern society, we rarely talk about it. I think that if we were more aware of our own expiration, I'm sure we'd make better choices while we are alive. So he calls Ticker the happiness watch. Why? Because he says, as as you're watching your life slip away, It will remind you to savor every moment in which you live. Now, Steve Jobs put it this way. He said, if you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. But then he said, I've looked in the mirror every morning and I've asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want me to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row... I know I need to change something. Then he says this, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. 
Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. If today were the last day of your life, how would you live it? Would you do what you've already had planned for today? Or would you change it up? I mean, that's a sobering reality that the end is near. And I think it helps us to really focus on what is really, really important. Peter goes on to say in verse 8 that we need to be lovable and loving. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we need to give ourselves sacrificially to other people by loving them and make a determined effort to demonstrate compassion for other people in life. That's what he's wanting us to do. I mean, that word earnestly, we talked about that a few weeks ago, remember? That earnestly is like that that athlete who is straining and pressing forward to, to get to the end of the race, and he's doing everything, and all the muscles are taut and doing whatever they can to get there. He's telling us here, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You do everything you can to finish the race of loving those around you. It's important that we do that. And so he quotes Proverbs 10.12 when he says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. We need to love, and we need to be lovable. Not long after his death, or before his death, let's get this straight, before his death, because he could speak at that point to us. So not long before his death, Martin Luther King Jr., he was preaching at the, the congregation, to the congregation there at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, and he said this, If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then, I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I think that would be great to have on a tombstone. John tried to love somebody. Peter says, not beyond that, you need to be hospitable. So in verse 9, he goes on with saying, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. (laughs) You know, some people, they can be hospitable, right? Between their, you know, they don't clench teeth. They're talking somebody silently. They really don't want to do that. But to show hospitality literally means to love strangers. And that's what it means to love strangers. And in Peter's persecution day, they were forced a lot of believers out of their homes because of it, and so they had to find some place to live, and so they looked to the church to open up their homes. Even if they didn't know who they were, they would let them come and live with them. Today, even though we don't experience the level of persecution yet, 
God still expects us to be hospitable toward others. When you show hospitality, you never know who you might be serving. That's why the author of Hebrews in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality for strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Wouldn't you like to have a messenger of God stay at your house one night? Gulp. <laughs> yeah. Finally, he tells us to be a servant. So he says in verses 10 through 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, God has graciously given every believer a supernatural ability, which He calls a gift. Now, you may actually have more than one, but everybody that's a Christian actually has at least one of these gifts. The Scripture speaks about in various places that there's possibly like 14 spiritual gifts maybe, or give or take some. But, but Peter kind of narrows it down to two, and they, and they fall into these categories. One is speaking gifts, such as the ability to exhort or encourage or to prophesy, you know, to, to be able to, to preach. Um, and the others are labeled under serving gifts, and that's helping others, maybe gifts of administration, or where we're doing things for other people. So he, he says that we have these basic two things that we can look at. Now, no one has all of these gifts. At least I've never run across anybody who has all these gifts. They're gifted all differently. Matter of fact, Jesus even told a, a parable about a, a guy that was giving his talents or his gifts to some of his servants while he was going to be gone. One had received one, another five, another ten. And what they did with the gift or the talent that was given when the owner came back depended on how much that they were blessed as a result of their using and serving and, and doing something with it. I think it's the same thing true with us. Years ago, I, I started playing my guitar at church with our youth group with the kids and... Uh, had a revivalist came and preached at our church in Wood River, and he says, you, you play guitar? I said, yeah, I, I play with the kids. He says, why aren't you playing and, and worship on Sunday morning with the adults? I said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> he says, well, I'll pray for you. I said, well, I appreciate that. No, he says, I'm going to pray that God takes it away. I said, what? And Tommy Oaks just simply said, hey, if you're not going to use the gift that God has given you, in a variety of ways, then maybe you shouldn't have that gift. I thought, that's, that's, that's important. We need to use the gifts that we've been given. So the question is, what gift are you using to benefit and encourage the church? If you're not using your gifts, maybe we ought to pray that he takes it away. And I pray you don't lose those gifts. You see, the word supplies that he uses in here, that God supplies us with these gifts. It was used in the Bible days to describe paying for an entire chorus of professional musicians at public events. 
all right? You would, I'll supply the musicians, all right? I mean, it was an extravagant expense, and so the word came to describe these words of extravagance, you know, and so it was, it's quite an expense on your part to do that, to provide that. But that's what it's saying about God. This is how God gives you the strength and the abilities to go through persecution and to lift each other up and to serve one another because He is extravagantly supplying you with all the gifts and the abilities that you need by His strength and not by your own. So when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were transformed, you were recreated. You, the old you is gone and there's a new you and it's been patterned after Jesus Christ. And you no longer live and you no longer walk in the way that everyone else in this world does. You don't look like them anymore. You're supposed to look like Jesus. And you become, well, like a butterfly. From the purpose of the stages of this butterfly cycle, I found some things that are really interesting, and there's things out there you can look at and take a little spiritual overtone to them as well. So let's kind of just close up with this. First off, you begin as a butterfly with the egg, right? And, and the egg is there, but then this caterpillar hatches out of the egg, and, and as the caterpillar hatches, you know, it starts making its way around in this life. And just as our earthly life begins so also we have a spiritual life that is born as well. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus tells us about that we need to be born again spiritually. And then we become that caterpillar, right? Well, no, that caterpillar is what we are before we're born again. And the caterpillar, the main purpose of that caterpillar stage is feeding. And Sometimes I really feel like a caterpillar. I mean, that's their whole purpose. They feed, they binge all the time, and therefore your gardens, the leaves have holes in them, they eat through everything, and it just drives you crazy because these caterpillars, all they do is eat, 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 eat. But they are preparing themselves for something that is about to come in the very near future of their life. And so they prepare by eating and eating. Well, Christian, we do the same thing. We are to feast upon the Word of God, and we are to binge upon His Word so that we can stuff ourselves, so that we will know there's going to be a transformation, a change that takes place, and His Word is going to be powerful for us in how we live. So that we enter into that pupa stage where the transition really takes place. And during that time, the caterpillar, they grow wings and legs and antennae based upon all the food that they've eaten. And as they are changing with inside that cocoon, eventually they are going to come out. Well, that's the same thing about us. As Christians, we are also in transition, and as we feed on the Word, we develop spiritual attributes to our lives that weren't present in our former self because we're becoming different. And the spiritual fruit and desires arise that give evidence that we are not the same ugly caterpillar that we once were. Well, then there's the butterfly. That's the beautiful stage, isn't it? I mean, it's that, that gentle butterfly stage is when they begin to, to come out of that cocoon and, and, and eventually as the squeezing of coming out of that cocoon, it does something in the transitions of the chemical and the stuff that's within the butterfly and it, and it fills up its wings and it does something so when it comes out, it is no longer that little thing that crawls along the ground because now it can fly. And we think they're beautiful. I was watching yesterday with my grandson down in, in uh, Carthage, Missouri. 
And as we were walking, there were some butterflies. He got excited about the butterflies. I don't know if he'd be excited about the little caterpillars, but he was excited about the butterflies. And so we wanted to follow him a little bit. See, this beautiful butterfly stage has the main natural purpose to reproduce. Well, Christians, as you become butterflies in Christ, your main purpose is to reproduce as well, to make disciples, to introduce other people to Christ. When the world looks at those of us who are Christians, they should see people who are changed from that rather ugly caterpillar of life that is living for its own self-passions. And it's changed to live, to reflect the image of Jesus in all of his beauty for the benefit of others. It's my hope that you and I would continue to feed on the Word of God and that allow that Word to change us and to, to create within us something that's wonderful and beautiful. But the problem is we still keep going back to wanting to be caterpillars. But you're not designed to do that. You're designed to continue to be more and more like Jesus. We're going to have an invitation song for you. If you want to leave the old stage that you've been living in, that is, you just find yourself crawling in the dirt of life. And you want to eventually soar to new heights, well, you've got to come out of your cocoon. You've got to surrender to Jesus. You've got to allow Him to make you into who you need to be truly. Let's stand together.